listeners, you're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies. We're your hosts, Sarah Cho. And Sam Collier. And today we welcome back our dear friend, Ryan Oliveira. He was on our show, um, I think he was our first guest. Is that right? I think so. A year ago. And um, so he's back better than ever before with more (laughs) things to tell us. And... Yeah, welcome back, Ryan. Thanks for having me back, y'all. I appreciate it. It's been it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, so it's been one year. Uh, tell us what what you've been up to. What has happened since you've been on the show? Aside from my earliest childhood memory, yeah, I keep track. <laughs> <laughs> has that changed? <laughs> has, did I say my earliest childhood memory? Um, life? I don't know, but why don't you tell us again? If yeah. You I keep, I keep, I, I keep thinking every time you ask get guests about their early childhood memory, I keep going back and thinking, I never got asked. Okay, um, well, we're asking you right now, Ryan. What's yeah. your earliest childhood memory? Um, I want to say. Okay, all right. I, I think, I, I think it's, I think it's this one. I'm pretty sure it's this one. Um, at first it was, it was another one, but, uh, on my birthday, but I, I decided not to, I don't think it was that one. Um, my earliest childhood memory was I would, I am in a third floor apartment in North Miami beach and it's a really overcast day. And I'm looking at the sliding glass door that leads to our balcony sorts and I start singing some song about clouds (laughs) like I think the lyric goes I wonder where the clouds go something 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 and um I'm doing that and I like I'm having a moment I'm seeing I'm like coming up with lyrics on the fly like it's it's a very musical theater moment Mm. uh for a five-year-old and (laughs) that sounds like so sweet it sounds so sweet until you turn around and my dad is recording me. Oh. And he's laughing. In and like then, a loving way or in like well, a laughing at you way? <laughs> I, you know, when you're an anxious five-year-old, they both sort of bleed into each other. Yeah. Um. So from then, I didn't sing for a very long time. Oh. I'm now doing that now, but... Um, um, but I, I was so embarrassed that I kept it. And it's probably my earliest memory that I can recall. Um, and it's one of the more important memories just because I, you know, people know me as a playwright, but it's just like before I was a playwright, I was, I, I guess in a weird impulsive sort of way, in deep impulse sort of way, I was a singer songwriter first, uh, before I ever thought theater was a thing mm-hmm. or could be a thing. Wow, that's really that's really profound that you had this that this memory has really stuck with you. And so, it, when was it that you started performing again? Um, when I was made to. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Um, I was made to perform when I was around thirteen, and it was only for church groups. Oh, okay. Um, it was only for church choir for Brazilian church choir because. 
they didn't, I, I had, I hadn't gone through puberty yet. So I still had a very light voice. And then once puberty happened, not so much. Um, and then uh, the only time that I was quote allowed to perform, um, because my parents like were like, and everybody at Brazilian church group was like, Oh, you have a pretty, pretty voice. It was like, yeah, you have to say that because you're the church. Um, and then it wasn't until, and I'm going to like Daphne secret gets credit for this. Um, it wasn't until senior year of high school. And I remember I was just singing to myself in the drama classroom, like class office. Mm -hmm. I was singing to myself. And again, people overheard me singing. I was just singing a pop song or something. Mm -hmm. And people overheard me and they're like, and it wasn't embarrassment this time. It was, why didn't you tell us you could? Oh, wow. And I was like, I, I was ashamed. I thought I wasn't very good. And so throughout the semester, we were building myself up to showing my drama school teacher, who is Daphne Secret. And um, so they made me do it um, on a stage and perform it. And I did a Celine Dion song because that's all I knew. This is coming back to me. I think I remember uh, hearing it's this. all coming what back. What was to the me. song? Um, it was a song from Bicentennial Man called And Then You Look At Me. Okay. It's one of my, it's a very understated Celine Dion song. I quite like it. Mm -hmm. um, and I sang it and people applauded and Daphne C. Cray, Daphne hugged me and then she kept hitting my shoulder and she's like, why didn't you tell me? We would have put you in all the musical competition slots. Whoa. You're so good. And so then we went to my other English teacher, uh, Miss Geltzer, who gave me like three cassette tapes of musicals that I should learn uh, for auditions. And she's like, you really like, you really should get to know these because you have a, you have a really good voice. You just don't know how to use it. And that would come up so often. It would come up again in undergrad. It would come back, come up again. Even, um, even in grad school, it came up again. Mm -hmm. um, courtesy of Meredith, it mm -hmm. came up again. Um, and it's the note of, and it's the note of you do you, and it would come up again, uh, at like the Swanee Writers Conference. It would come up again in Latinx play. It, it, it's become a very, it's become a staple of mine of you don't know how good you are. Um, is it hard for you to hear that when people say it? Do you feel like you have to be reminded of it over and over again because at some level you don't believe them? Uh, yeah. I mean, I suffer, I mean, I suffer from extreme anxiety and self-esteem issues. So for me, it's, it's hard to hear that because it's hard to hear that because it's it, when it's something of your own that you're, for example, when it came to academics, it's like, yeah, I know I'm smart. I know, I know how to analyze stuff and I know, I know how to, you know, synthesize information and spit it out to you. That's easy. Mm, like, yeah. I don't mind that. But when it's something that's so intrinsic to your soul, mm. um, like writing or like singing, it's like, I, I don't have training. Like I, 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 for singing, I didn't have training. Mm -hmm. So I'm not... 
you know, and for writing, even playwriting, like I had some training, but it wasn't like the most, it wasn't like tech. I wasn't doing this since I was five. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't, you get very self-conscious. And when people tell you like, you surprise me, oh, you're brilliant. I didn't think, I didn't think I could think about it in a way. And yet you did. And, oh, you don't think you have that impact. And I'm, I'm extremely humble for me. I, you know, I don't ever want to think that I'm better than anybody. Um, I just do what I need to do. Um, and what I think I can do. And if it's great, awesome. If it's not, I beat myself up. Um, but so to hear that I'm getting better at accepting when people say, say that, that I'm, that I'm good. Um, I'm still, I'm still like wrestling with that now. Um, but it's part of a process. It's part of a process of a mental health process of, Mm -hmm. you know, saying thank you, (laughs) having gratitude for that. And really, and when people come back to you about that, really taking in what works and seeing what you can do to improve upon it better and understanding that it is a process and you don't have to beat yourself up about it. Um, and that, you know, people aren't laughing. People laughing at you is a, is not a reflection of you. It's a reflection on them and their journey through what you're doing. And it's, you know, it's, it's a process. You have to fail a lot of times in order until you get to a place where you can feel a little bit more comfortable. It's like playing guitar. It's like mm-hmm. I stopped at the beginning and now I can sort of play Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> and, and very I'm very happy about that. And I can play Neil Young song and sound relatively great on them. So, so yeah, so it's, it's that sort of process that you take as an artist is just mm-hmm. reconfiguring your artistic journey throughout and developing some new modes for it and new ways to think about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was a lot, by the way. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry, <laughs> listeners. Um, no, no, you- it, it, it's good. It's a good place to start because I think it gives yeah. us a lot to, um, to think about. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. It, it's been something I've been thinking about a lot for the past year? Year. I've been thinking about it a lot for the past year. Oh, since the show. You were on the show. Since the we, show, we, yeah. Yeah, since, well, you, we made you think, huh? We <laughs> we did. You all did. Um, and a lot of and a lot of the circumstances surrounding the show in Chicago Theater, mm-hmm. yeah. and a lot of the things that I was reading really made me think a lot about my own journey as an artist. Um, so it's, it's, yeah. So I have to, I have you all to thank for that. Mm-hmm. It's a fun new journey. So in the last year, I'd love to know what hurdles did you over feel like you overcome? Mm. Came? Um, yeah. So I had two productions uh, in Chicago, one of Slacker Player and one of Desire in a Tiny House. So uh, for people who said my work wasn't producible, screw them. Uh, <laughs> They did. Um, I got to work with Alex Casillas, I'm so, who is a set designer that I admire so much. I got to work with some folks that, you know, 
I admire great, a great deal in terms of an artistic team. Um, they were definitely learning experiences. Um, the only, but then, so overcoming those were really, was really great. It's just like, I was talking to my therapist. It was just like, you set out to have a production, like to have a production and look what happened. You now have two people now know your name. People now do that. You ended up getting, I ended up getting hired for two dramaturgy jobs that I didn't think I did, I was going to do very well in. And then it turns out I did really well in. And I was, I was, I got an award nomination for my dramaturgy. That's so cool. That's it was awesome. really cool. What was um, the show that you, what was that show? Uh, there were two shows in development. It, it was a special Alta Award uh, for artistic um, achievement in a play, in a non-dictated category. So, so 16th Street Theater, um, outside of the scandals that have happened with it, uh, was spearheading a new works initiative, courtesy of Nancy, Gar- Nancy Garcia Losa, who's a good friend of mine. Um, she's awesome, an awesome playwright, beautiful producer, just such a, such a beautiful champion of work. She is one of the best champions of work. If you ever get a chance to interview her, I highly, highly suggest you do. She's amazing. Um, FYI, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, we will. Well, that's a good. That's a good tip. Yes, I'll get you her info. Um, but yes, she. So she, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Debbie Banos, uh, was working on a solo piece called uh, basically about American citizenship. Um, and the difficulties in getting asylum and citizenship uh, when you are Salvadorian. And this was this was before the Trump administration. Um, this was you know, years back. She was working on a solo piece about that. And I was requested to dramaturg. Mm-hmm. And so I dramaturged that piece. Um, it was it was a piece that I felt a personal connection with because most of my parents were immigrants and then turned citizens. Um, and then turn Trump supporters, which we won't talk about that. Um, but then, so I worked with her on that and it was a really fulfilling thing. We found a lot of really great material out of it and audiences were really moved and educated. And then from that, uh, Nancy invited me to dramaturg another show. So I would dramaturg two shows out of their three show play fest, like, play development series mm-hmm. and the other one was uh, a play by Dolores Diaz called uh, Los Tequileros which is about tequila runners in the 20s uh, during Prohibition Cool. Um, and the racism that ensued and so I helped her out with that and the crew and it, the dramaturgy felt super fulfilling I don't think I had ever been quite as fulfilled by dramaturgy before up until this point where it's like, oh, this is like, I really want to do these plays. These plays speak to me mm-hmm. in a way that, um, and I have things to offer. I didn't think I had things to offer, but now I do. Um, and then, so I got the Alto nominations for that. I was really, really humbled by that. Um, people wanted me to be a teacher and I was really scared about being a, a professor, uh, essentially a professor for a bit for uh, a course and it was just for a month but um but I 
overcame that and I loved teaching again and I was an effective teacher. What um, was the hurdle there? Like what, what did you feel like you um unsure about in terms of teaching? Because I remember um at Iowa at least it seemed like you really loved teaching. I really loved teaching, but I was also I didn't think I was very good at it because oh, I, I didn't think I was very good at it because I was impulsive. I was petty. I was disorganized. Um, I, I couldn't articulate the thoughts that or inspire the thoughts in my own students in a way. I felt, I felt like I had shortchanged them hmm. um, and I was too hard. And then when I get into this class, these two classes I taught, one of these classes was, um, so I was subbing for Isaac Gomez and one of them was race plays. And I was terrified because I'm talking like, I'm a white passing gay Latino. What business do I have teaching plays about race? But there were a lot of really great conversations that I wanted to have. And that's how I wanted to approach it. It was like, we're approaching this as like really great conversations, but I'm also approaching this class with you is I'm here to train you to be dramaturgs. Mm-hmm. And this is an upper level class. So I'm training you to be really good dramaturgs. And in order for me to be that, I have to be hard on you. And I have to be really specific as much as we're going to be all in our feelings about it. I have to do that. And I was basically, we were basically wrestling with the material discussion. And it was just like, they were blowing my minds. I was blowing their minds. It felt like a real conversation was happening. That's so cool. And it was really cool. Um, and, and then I, the, the, for the other class, the minute that I knew that I was, I was being effective was all of a sudden we were taught, we were discussing live performance and I was talking about neuroscience, um, and the neuroscience of live performance and, um, the neuro, the, the religious neuroscience involved in like performances that elevate you. And someone was really embarrassed about like, oh, I don't want to really talk about this. I think it's stupid. And she talked about how she really enjoyed a Harry Styles concert. And I was like, that's what we're looking for. Like, you mm-hmm. were moved by that thing. Let's let's dissect why you were moved. What about that experience made it so live for you? And so here we are as a group suddenly, finally dissecting what it means to be a live performance, why it's so important to you to have that. And I don't think I was able, I was able in previous years to do that. Um, But now it felt like I had much more of a a stake in it. And it was really, it was really nice to overcome and think, well, I'm not as bad as a teacher as I think I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so there were lots of personal hurdles. Um, the other hurdle what to overcome this last year was uh, realizing that I needed to take time for myself mm-hmm. um, and realizing that I, so um, for those who don't know, um, so this past, so shortly after a desire and it's on your house or during that, I um, had suffered a nervous breakdown um, while at work during a call <laughs> um, that uh, to this day still haunts me, but, um, it you had me. so many stressful calls at that job. I did. And one sent me over the edge because it had triggered me. Uh, and I was like, okay, 
great. I need to deal with this right now. Um, so I, you know, I saw, I decided I can't put this off anymore. I have to go to my, I have to go to my doctor. Um, and my doctor, you know, said, you should probably consider seeing a psych. Um, and my therapist was like, you probably should see one too. And, uh, so I go to the psychiatrist and, you know, I was diagnosed with bipolar two and it was something that was talked about in undergrad, but we never thought about it, but this seemed apropos. So I was starting to get treatment and the treatment we were trying to figure out a treatment regimen that worked. And throughout that process, I mean, it was, it was brutal. Like I would be taking medications that, um, would drop my blood sugar to dangerous levels, um, where I was nearly passing out at work. Uh, I was taking medicate. I was moved to another medication that it would knock me out for nearly the whole day. And, um, they were really hard and I was trying to stick with them as much as I I possibly could. We finally found a regiment that worked. Um, but it was a lot of, it was a lot of learning that, Oh, I really need to take the time to work on like to, mm. to heal myself. And especially after desire in a tinier house, which desire in a tinier house, I was really proud of that work. Um, it's such a beautiful play. I Thank really you. It's it's a beautiful play. Uh, the critics didn't seem to like it very much, um, and they were some. One of them, the Chicago reader, was lovely, but most of them were really scathing. And one of them kind of came for my educational background. Really? Yeah, one of them came for me. Um, and I mean, it's okay. I got him back, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I won't. I won't say how, but um. Uh, but I, I, um, but that hurt, like it, it reminded me of a time in workshop and you, you both will remember this. Um, I don't know if you'll remember it. Um, my last workshop at Iowa. Mm, yeah, I remember that, that really brutal, um, like the one that almost made me quit for good. Yeah, I um, remember that. That was horrible. I mean, um, I, I really, I think, I mean, from we've talked about this before, but from yeah. what I remember, I, I really loved that play. And I think that, um, uh, you know, it's just, it's just the thing that happens to all of us. I think as artists where the, where, when we're on the receiving end of feedback, it can feel, um, a lot more weighty or more um mm-hmm. more even i mean even harsh than it might seem to uh, an outside observer who is not the creator of that work and so um i and so especially because i think if there's one or two or three people who have criticisms um often and I know this about myself too as an artist like those are the things I remember from the conversation Mm -hmm. and the more positive comments a lot of times don't don't register as deeply um to the artist even though another observer might say oh you know there was a lot of really positive feedback as well um as when you're when you're the person who has created the work a lot of times it's harder to see that balance because you're so focused on 
yeah the criticism you know and so I think I had a different take on that on that on your workshop than you did but I but I do remember how um upset you were it was I think it was different from other the other workshop because I'm like in workshop I'm used to you know I'm used to very fresh work being extremely polarizing and people sort of bashing on it but there was something about that workshop in particular that felt like a war zone and I was just like I remember like there were some people commenting about the plays and then Meredith and Marina and Slalock having to like come to my defense which I was like this is really bizarre I don't I don't like how this is going like this feels very unsafe I wonder Uh, if that raises um another question that might be worth mm -hmm. talking about like yeah, just about um, feedback in general and how mm-hmm. because I think a lot of playwrights, especially if people are listening to this and they haven't had a lot of um, workshop experience, yeah, um, they might not know how to navigate that kind of situation, especially because yeah, I mean it's just so true that people are having an emotional reaction or they're having a uh, intellectual reaction and, and 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 aren't always able to give you the most helpful feedback you know but like mm-hmm. but you don't know that necessarily especially if you're a, a writer who's just starting out do you have any advice for newer younger playwrights who might have that kind of workshop experience how do, how can they take that feedback with a grain of salt and um and know that it's not necessarily, I mean, it almost certainly isn't an objective measure oh, for sure. of their work. Um, what would you tell them? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think over the years, I've, because I've been on both sides now as not just the playwright, but also the dramaturg having to mediate that. Mm-hmm. Um. So A, having a dramaturg as a mediator is extremely important. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and to be in communication with that person, like the dramaturg there is is there to take care of your person when that happens. And also to mediate. So I remember with uh, Dolores' play, uh, she got attacked a lot for an overuse of Spanish in her play, which I, like, white audiences... Um, was it, how did that, how did that manifest? Was it like in a feedback session or talk back? People said there's too much Spanish. It was a talk back and people kept doing that. So, wow. And I was prepared for it. so disheartening. It is extremely disheartening because I think it's a cop out. Um, it's, it's just like when people want to turn Parasite into an English language version, it's like, there's nothing wrong with the original. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, it's just, it's. It's it's an intellectual complacency to not deal with another culture and just completely out. And I've 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 had that feedback before, especially about Portuguese. And um, so, what, what can a dramaturg do in that kind of feedback? Exactly. Situation. So, so what I like to do is I like to reframe the question, and so I like to reframe the comments. So when people say like I didn't understand the Portuguese, I checked out. It's like okay. 
If you could isolate a moment where you wish you wanted to know a little bit more and language just seemed like a little too much of a barrier for you, Mm -hmm. what moment would it have been and why? And then I pay attention to the comment. Mm -hmm. If they can isolate it to a singular moment or a cup or two moments at least, then I say, oh, well, these are two moments I should work on the translation-y a bit and see if there's something emotionally affective that I can work on structure on so that way they don't dismiss it outright as a language linguistic barrier Mm -hmm. um because i usually think sometimes i think linguistic barriers are it's like when someone says oh that's interesting yeah interesting doesn't tell me anything right when you tell me that there's a linguistic barrier i'm like okay but there's something you really really want to know in this one moment right oh that's really smart yeah yeah what is it that you wish you wanted to know now here's the thing if as a playwright you or a dramaturg, you ask that question and your the answer from an audience member is, well, I didn't get the whole thing. I just didn't, like, I just feel like I needed subtitles. You can automatically, I, in my opinion, you can automatically discount that. Hmm. that because at this point, that's not an audience member you're trying to reach. And that's not an audience, like, that's the audience member that gets dragged to this. <laughs> it's like, that's, when, when you are met, when you are met with a generalized comment like that, that's not coming out of a place of curiosity. That's coming out of a place of dismissal. Dismissal, mm-hmm. and, and, and you don't need to take that. That's dismissal. Your words have intentions, and they're not willing to consider your intentions or at least think about it. Um, the other one, the other one I like to do was when I confronted someone on subtitles. Because uh, they were just like, well, that could just easily be fixed in subtitles. It's like, okay, but it is the playwright's intention that it's not supposed to be subtitled. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. they, the audience member doubled down. And they're like, well, I was just promoting a solution. It was just like, yes, but the play is not here to be fixed. And I think so- this really gets back to, we did an episode last year about talkbacks. And mm-hmm. um, I think that this brings up another question I have. Um, which maybe is a conversation for another time, but but just about like, um, you know, what it who are talkbacks for and what is the value of them? Because mm-hmm. I think there are some situations where the talkback is really for the emo- for the audience to kind of process their reaction and emotions, and then there are other situations where it's intended to help the playwright develop the play, and it's really hard to do both of those things at the same time. Yeah. And so I think theaters have to be clear. And playwrights and dramaturgs have to be clear about um, communicating to the audience what kind of talkback it is, because it, I agree, it's really, it can be harmful. It, mm-hmm. it can be at the least unhelpful and at the, <laughs> the most very harmful um, to, to have a playwright sit there and just be on the receiving end of like an audience's um, kind of uh emotional, emotional catharsis yeah but you know but on the other hand that might be really valuable for an audience to to process and it might actually lead people um towards some kind of um i don't know it sounds really arrogant of me to say like growth as if like the audience yeah. needs needs us to 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 grow them somehow but um so but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think those two things yeah. could are are difficult to do at the same time. They are. 
And I think, so I've been thinking a lot about this because of what happened during that experience, but also, uh, so during Steppenwolf's, Steppenwolf was doing these talkbacks of La Ruta by Isaac Gomez, and I got to witness them, and they were dreadful. Uh, they were not moderated by people who didn't know the material, didn't know the history, oh, no. um, were pausing it on the playwright and all the professor were just like, well, since you're an expert, do I was like, no, that's the worst, worst thing to do in a talkback scenario. And I think it was because they were trying to do two things at once. And here's the thing. If it's a new work and a development outlining outlining and very much strictly moderating the idea of this is a new work in process we're approaching it out of a spirit of curiosity we're not here to fix the play we just want to know what speaks to you and what doesn't and really rigorously mm. curating that mm-hmm. um and and sometimes challenging an audience like mm-hmm. sometimes you have to be the conf- confrontationalist mm-hmm. and say well let's confront this like that is an idea stooped in racism let's try to reframe it in another way how do we reframe that as a question and the playwright and doesn't necessarily need to be there for that kind of a no. conversation and in fact they probably have. shouldn't be there <laughs> you know? I, um. i'm a firm believer that a playwright shouldn't be at a talk back quite frankly because then people are going to look to the playwright for answers and i think that's yeah um I think that's well, cool. unless it's a talkback where you know it's a development process, and the and the idea is to to give the the playwright good you know feedback in real time about how people are experiencing yeah. the moments of but the I play. But I think it's but I think it's still nerve wracking for a playwright to even be in that process because what happens is people then st- people audience members will still try to tweak it toward that per that playwright. So I was part of a playwright um, talkback that was tailored toward a play that I wrote and all of a sudden it gave the like it's weird to have an audience member look you in the eye and say I just think you like literally I had an audience member say like I think your characters just talk too much and I think you just don't trust like you don't have any wow. action and it's like great I don't need you to tell me that to my face yeah I but, I mean I guess I guess I'm I'm I would say as a playwright, you know, if somebody says something like that to me, I'm just like, okay, you know, that's your opinion. And it's not useful for me in developing the mm. play, but it doesn't outweigh the the feedback I get about, for example, people having questions left at the end that they really want answered or a moment where they got confused. And And I think at least my experience so far is that when I get that kind of feedback, it outweighs the the comments that are that are not helpful Uh, well here's the thing so i agree with that also sam you're a cancer so i'm not (laughs) Um, so here's the thing for a newer playwright though for a newer playwright yeah that like the feedback is kind of like a grenade going off and you hear the ringing in your ears and when you hear the ringing in your ears you can't possibly like properly synthesize the questions of the material which is why the second part of it is if you're going to have your playwright, if you're going to have your playwright within audience striking range of a dramaturgy, you really need to curate that. A, you need to very much curate that dramaturgy and be willing to confront folks on that kind of feedback as a dramaturg. Because, for example, that kind of feedback isn't helpful. So how like the dramaturg has to reframe it. The second thing is, if that happens, 
a dramaturg should really touch base, well, like within a week, I would say, uh, with the playwright of like, okay, let's do, let's do a recap of what was working and what people were feeling, and how can we, mm-hmm. how can we manage that tinnitus that you might have experienced? And this is when you're when you, I feel like when you're a far more experienced playwright, that like that feeling goes away a little bit because you can at least manage it a little bit better. But if you're a new playwright, if you're a new playwright or a playwright, which I would argue with increased anxiety um, or someone like me who like is just anxious about every single thing, that sort of tinnitus is really impactful mm-hmm. um, in a way that's deleterious to the process. Um, also, when you're dealing with, I would feel like when you're dealing with new works, and I say this about like, new works particularly with from playwrights of color mm-hmm. who are talking about issues that let's just be honest white audiences can't um white audiences just like have this speed to feel like compare it to something else mm-hmm. or to and that has generally been my experience with a lot of new works feed talkbacks with new works by people of color um Having the play when you are a playwright of color, you have the power to dictate the terms of how you want your feedback to go. And I don't think a lot of playwrights of color think about that, um, mm-hmm. but we do. We have a lot of power in that. So if you want to say, "Hi, I want to talk about X, Y, and Z. I won't accept anything else. I want a moderator who can, who for, potentially from my own community, who can moderate and talk about this." Mm-hmm. and you know, having those protections and those boundaries, I won't call them protections. I'll call them boundaries. Having those boundaries in place, I think is extremely, extremely helpful because it gives the playwright some sense of power and ownership on their own creative process. And I think having going into that lessens the emotional ire and at least helps you manage that emotional ire, emotional catharsis a little bit more. Because you can at least divide it from you're in your feelings versus, mm. oh, you have feelings that potentially lead into curiosities. Can we... So it's it's weird because dramaturgs have to sort of be therapists in that sort of sense, right? Because we have to effectively manage the emotions of an audience and see from the emotional... Um, shrapnel uh i I hate i hate using war (laughs) war terms to describe it but it sometimes does feel like a little bit of a war zone when you're entering that talkback space um so how to deal with the fallout of that and how to retweet that as okay so how do we take that emotional that very drenching um affect and catharsis and how do we rewire it into something that happens and here's the thing though sometimes it works for certain plays Mm -hmm. where you can have that distance and sometimes I feel like you just have to let an audience feel it without any sort of talk back because especially for something that like for a really powerful play I don't find it particularly useful to have a talk back and to analyze the pieces of it right 
after even five minutes after the plays happened Mm -hmm. because just just like an um because just like a when an audience member offers that sort of grenade like feedback that creates the tinnitus uh for a playwright the play itself can do that for an audience and in that tinnitus they haven't recovered so figuring out other methods particularly if you're dealing with a very touchy play alternative methods for gathering that new play feedback um that is that takes a little bit away from that has a little bit of distance away from that immediate tinnitus of the play is super helpful that's a very long-winded response to dramatical feedback when it comes to emotional works but it's something i think we can have a little bit more control over over than theaters being like let's just have a talk back about a really touchy play about like with someone who doesn't know the material and let's have it be really fresh for our minds. That's sometimes audiences just don't need that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, before we move on to our last question, this conversation just made me think, um, I think one of the big things I'm learning is that one, I, I really don't want to alienate the audience because I just think that I just think about like stories that I want to tell. And it's, I was like, okay, I last couple of plays I've written is very specific to the Korean experience, like Korean American experience. But then I'm like thinking like how the challenge then is really like, how do I take this very unique experience and feel universal? Like that is the challenge that I'm starting to face as like a, person of color and writing plays so when they think about like like talkbacks when you say like the the feedback I don't know there's some things that I was just kind of disagreed because I'm just like thinking that if they're in that moment they're experiencing they're questioning they're kind of like I'm not it's unclear I don't know why I'm feeling this way then I think we should instead of reach like wholeheartedly rejecting that or just kind of dismissing it just being like okay well I'm gonna take this back I'm like why did they what were the moments that kind of had those feelings or triggered those questions or like because then the challenge it's because like we should be constantly challenging ourselves like what is the challenge here that okay I need to make this better and like Mm -hmm. and make this more like Hmm. more white because because if we go into mentality of like this is this is where I where I'm like the mentality of like niche audience like I'm only going to be gearing only to this specific audience to gear only to this group of people then I'm like what about the rest like 97% of people <laughs> like because then mm. it's just like it's like that's why the, that's why it's so difficult this is why playwriting writing stories is so difficult because you're having to constantly grapple and like what is universal about this that resonates mm. more more people so that that i think could create that community that we could all relate to and like that oh we're we're all part of this <laughs> we're all part of this story even though it's not about a specific experience that i could relate to but i could relate to the themes of this or the themes of the you know so i think yeah, that's Sarah, just, that's like, it's making me think of um I I remember hearing 
I can't remember who I heard this from, but I, it was in some kind of workshop or masterclass I took. Um, the, the workshop leader said that audiences are really good at telling you when something is not working or that something is not working, but they're not good at telling you why it's not working. And so yeah. like they can tell you there's a problem in your play, but mm-hmm. not, they're not good at telling you how to fix that you. problem. Right. But I think that um, it can be helpful for us as, as the artists to, to get feedback about, oh, okay, there's something not working. And sometimes it's hard to hear, um, but then it's our job to figure out like, first of all can I fix that and how do I fix it Mm um and that's that's our job and and that's our job but but that's the part that a lot of times audiences like are wrong about and so like the answer of like well you should have subtitles probably isn't the way to fix that no but But then um, it's like thinking like okay well what why do they ask that like what yeah why do they feel like they want it like you know, it could be a design. It could be a design question or something. Sure. But, yeah. When you're having yes, but when you're having a reading, where, like, technically, like we don't like the the idea is we don't have to design stuff. Yes, we could mm-hmm. potentially handle design stuff, but when it's treated like a cop, like a cop out fix, then it's not really super helpful mm-hmm. in that sort of process. Which is why I think you have to then confront them a little bit on it. Of like, for example. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I wanted subtitles. Okay, well, if there is this one moment where you think I really wanted subtitles for this section because it really, I wanted to know more about it, then tell me what it is. And you can ask, you can, I feel like dramaturgs sometimes in the feedback session sometimes feel like they don't, they can't confront an audience member on it. But I think it, it's worth doing that because some, like, and this is going to sound really, and this may be sound this may sound really um bold and potentially controversial but i think there might like there sometimes is an inherent racism in saying like i think subtitles can fix it i really or like focusing on oh this is this seems like a wonderful set for this play to happen i was just like literally someone had said that during los tequilados because we were on an, a set, the set of in the heights and they're like oh well i just didn't understand why like the reading is set in like a city when it's set in desert. I was like, and I literally had to confront them and say like, because we're on someone else's set. Mm. And it's just like, but what it, but then I had to change it back. It's like, all right, so what about the setting? Did you want more of that Mm -hmm. made you feel like you were in this place? Mm -hmm. Was there something in the language that could have been offered? Was there something, was there something about the world that didn't feel, that felt a little disconnected? And I had to confront them on that. So for me, it's a conversation that needs to happen that I think, I think when you're more experienced as a playwright or just, (laughs) I like to say when you're more experienced as a playwright or to, um, and pardon my French, are giving fewer fucks (laughs) about, uh, about necessarily an audience having that sort of reaction you can gauge it a little bit better in the machinery of your mind to say that and i think to respond sarah to respond to the universal stuff um i don't know there's a real danger 
in like catering to universalist response, particularly as a playwright of color. And the reason why I say this is because particular like let's just be honest, most theater audiences are white, generally well off. Mm-hmm. Um, from a production standpoint, it's like it's like catering to a universe that is not yours, that is almost dismissive of your own universe that you're crafting. Mm-hmm. And so I think also the idea is as a playwright and a dramaturg and feedback is how do we, how do we better invite people into that world, into that, that part of that is still an aspect of their universe mm-hmm. that they never considered existed. Yeah. Um, but I think of a movie and, like Parasite, you know, like yeah. that, like that is super Korean. That's Korean. Only Koreans don't understand like that, but it, like a whole international level like it yeah. resonated across the universe like the world so it's something about <clears throat> except like maybe some like trump voters or whatever but <laughs> um but like there were themes in there we understand yeah. class we understand this like inequality that's happening in the world right now but it's like that's what i'm talking about is those kinds of specific those those themes even though the story is taking place in Korea, it's a Korean family. Everything about mm-hmm. the relationship is so Korean, but mm-hmm. it's resonating to a lot of people because we're all experiencing this thing. So, exactly. Yeah, exactly. that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and so I hear that. Yeah, and I think, and I think, in a thematic sense, like if we touch a base off, if we stick to the ideas of theme, mm-hmm. and what are patterns that we notice um throughout that resonate and like those like you like what was i watching i was watching like a youtube video on sort of gaming conventions and environmental storytelling Mm -hmm. and the idea is so there are three levels and if you want to focus on like the nitty there's like a middle level where it's level design and if you want to focus on sort of patterns and moods like the like this is a like it's like a middle gateway nexus point where mm-hmm. if you want to like if you want to really touch on where the audiences can blend mm. that's the zone you want to do when in terms of themes in terms of that and sometimes you just have to guide them a little bit or confront them a little bit so that way you can see where that melding is mm-hmm. so that way they don't get so caught up in the details and they don't get so caught up in like this generalized world building that doesn't feel like but we just want to get to that middle point where where those two meet Um, Mm -hmm. and I think you're right in terms of themes and in terms like in terms of themes and in terms of patterns Mm -hmm. and echoes of like things that keep resonating. Yeah. Um, I think we can, we can focus on a better feedback. The problem with, the problem with generalized critique though, like, which is why I ended up being like, uh, was when it, when critique starts to go into attack and like preservation of an audience mindset as opposed mm. to um, as opposed to a real genuine curiosity about the work and where it, how it exists and where it exists and why it exists, mm. that becomes dangerous. And that's why, you know, that's why, you know, at a certain point I was just like, after like two productions and a lot of development where that happened, I was like, cool. I'm going to take a break mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> from theater and try to pursue my own stuff. Um, and which is fine. 
Um, I was really scared about that. But sometimes you just need to be like, all right. And then so and then I was like teasing this off to people. And my director from for soccer player, I talked to this about it and it's just like, yeah, I think like I think maybe in a few years people will be ready for it. But I think people aren't ready for it now because they're still all up in their feelings about it. But maybe trying another way mm-hmm. to to be an artist about it. Mm-hmm. So which is why like writing a novel is like one of the new like it's the only new project that I want to take on this year other than editing. It's the only thing I want to do because like it's it's nice to have that freedom back a little bit and that ownership. Um but to say that like that we we do we can have those boundaries in place but you're right the dramaturgy I think from a critical aspect, people just, we can, we can teach people how to be critically minded about a play at that middle point. We just have to like, we just have to push people to do that mm-hmm. and we can do that as a talk back, but you have to be very, you have to be ready and you have to really intend your talk back to be that because if you end up if you're talk if you're trying to do two things at once with a talk back, I feel like you're just gonna get mud. And not the Maria Irene Fornes play. Like you're just <laughs> you're just you're just yes, it's a playwriting joke. Um but yeah, so that's 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 just my personal experience thus far. Um that could change in like five years. But um but it's interesting because I like but because with this play that I've been editing and now is like going to be at the Austin Let the Austin Let the Next Play Festival, um, you know, I was thinking about a universal mindset about it, and it's in Portuguese, so it's really weird for like not just American audiences but Hispanic audiences who are not used to. It. Now I've got two forms of audience members that might not get this. Yeah. How am I going to translate that experience into it? And the more I thought about it, I was just like, I could make it universal. I could do subtitles. I was like, no, like this is specific to my experience. We'll see what we can do with. Like, I want people to go through that immersion experience, just like we have to go through that immersion experience. Mm-hmm. And maybe in that immersion experience, we can discover something really knowledgeable and fine tune what that middle is. That's my hope. But that's what I'm thinking in terms of dramaturgy and feedback and criticism at this point. It's, it's given me a lot. The break has given me a lot to think about. <laughs> totally. Oh, lightly. But I agree. Alrighty. We are almost out of time. Um, so before we wrap up, let's move on to glistens. Ryan, you know what glistens are. <laughs> I know. I'm used to this. <laughs> They're um, haunting every day. <laughs> um, okay, so who would like to start? Um, okay, I'll start. So my glisten is a super creepy website called thispersondoesnotexist.com. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it is a um, computer-generated... If you type that in, thispersondoesnotexist.com, you will see a computer-generated human face that the computer has invented based on being fed, I guess, hundreds of thousands or maybe millions. I honestly don't know how many 
photographs of human beings that it mm-hmm. that the programmers just grab so like from the internet. combination of faces is that well it's it not is? a combination so much as it is like it's making up an entirely new face based on the um information it knows about what a face <sighs> looks like um, and and where you can and so they look super convincing i mean they look like they could actually be real human beings but where you can start to see how the computer thinks is if you um, that there's also this horse does not exist where it has been fed pictures of horses. And then you get these really kind of trippy pictures of horses with like six legs or like really blurred faces. And for me, when I looked at that, I was like, Oh, okay. This is like the computer doesn't yet know what a horse looks like, even though it knows what a person looks like. So then you can start to see how it works. Um, but, but what the implications of this are kind of, mind-blowing the idea that people could use these made-up faces to create fake accounts or um, uh, make it look like people are doing things that no human being is actually doing and I read an article that was like oh this is definitely going to be used in pornography (laughs) Um, which has all kinds of other weird ethical implications so yeah, that's my glisten. Brave Ugh. New World. Humans that don't exist. I'm going to check this out and I'll probably tell Alex about this. It's gonna freak you out of so his alley. Yeah. All right. So my glisten is I just finished the first season of the show called The Sinner. I was on Netflix. Holy Ooh. cow. It is so like I oh I can't even I don't <laughs> even know where to begin. It's so like so creepy and just like the storytelling is just so oh i it, i've just been really into it's a true no it's not true crime it's a crime drama and jessica mm-hmm. stars jessica beale she Who does an amazing job oh my gosh she does this one like the so the concept of the show is that people doing unexplainable things and they're being tried for it or being guilty for it. And the, and so it's like wow. trying to understand why she did this. And in the show, uh, she goes to the beach. She just like runs up to a person, just start stabbing them in like <gasps> daylight in front of everyone. And then, and then the whole show is about uncovering why did she do that in that moment? And she doesn't remember, like she blacked out, you know? Wow. So it's like That's a very so creepy. Intense- so creepy intense drama and i was just like oh this is so and then the ending of it wow like i was just blown away by all the twists and turns so you find out at the end of the first season yeah yeah it's, okay yeah and it's an anthology but it's the same detective so the next season i haven't seen the se- season two but it's like a new case and it's all about that person okay. so it's like it's an anthology that way um yeah yeah. It's the latest and greatest craze in TV. So like, uh, it's like I a have such a hard time with things that are scary or violent, but it's um, so yeah, I think you would hate this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was going to say I would like, try I mean, it just for you, Sarah. I, I, but I think no, you'll be you'll be so like this is so better for other people. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. What's your glisten? All right. So I have been reading Judith Butler's new book. Oh, is it uh, so good? It is so I really good, want to read Sarah. it. Um, so I've been reading it. Um, note, word to the wise, please don't read philosophy while you're in your morning commute. It just doesn't work. <laughs> uh, 
four year afternoon commute also doesn't work. But I've been try- I've been reading it and it's been it's been really eye opening about so it basically is we had like rethinking what violence and nonviolence is in terms of our definitions and really honing what that is. Yeah. Particularly and something that I keep running into is this notion of um so and she had and Judith had said uh had mentioned this in a in an interview with Masha Gessen. Yeah, I read in that Yorker. interview. It was so good. It, it, it's so good. Um, well, the idea of likability politics being a form of violence, mm-hmm. um, the idea of silencing being a type of violence that we enact on primarily the marginalized, uh, because we're ex- uh, we're expected to operate on a system that, in its or in its purported origins, is essentially like violence always existed because we always had to be self-sufficient and therefore you know violence has to happen people have to be silenced and people have to be put to the margins because it is for our own survivability and judith butler is like one of the most amazing chapters that i've read because it was like so but think about it when we are first brought into this planet we have to depend on one other person for ages upon ages we don't we don't live in a self-sufficient bubble we live on the interdependence of like our mothers our fathers our chosen families our friend groups like we all depend on one another for our existence and survival so this notion that man usually white had to be you know at the fore like this is our origin of what political um political structure and logical structure is is fallacious because we are at our very origin an interdependent species Mm -hmm. and so the idea is how to transmit a like how to transmit a collective mindset of tyrannical like essentially tyrannical rage um and this need for like warlike violence and however state sanctioned violence and however that form dictates to realizing how do we realize the interdependency in one another for our own sustenance so that we change we reconfigure how we think human society and civilization should be yeah which and i is, feel like is really only a radical notion in the U.S. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I feel like yeah. most societies and civilizations have a much better recognition of well, our interdependence because, than than twenty first century. Well, because our mindset America. is so our the the mindset that is sold that has been sold to us the mythos of the American dream and the American individual yeah is individualism we don't need anybody else except we were founded on the principles that we needed to be independent interdependent on one another to coexist and to finally actually exist as 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 its own country so this myth that we you know we did it all ourselves and like we're like one man 
against everything else is is such a well it's such a male thing to say but <laughs> um but it it's such a it's a myth it's a it's a myth yeah. we carve out to essentially silence and maintain this political existence that doesn't cater to anything outside the box which i think in turn in this new era we're gonna have to mm. um we're gonna have to configure like it, it makes me think of the idea like i keep joking around with my gay friends like we should all form a co-op and the more this administration keeps going on the more i keep thinking like you know a co a gay co- a queer co-op wouldn't be so bad yeah. <laughs> um that we yep. depend on ourselves not just sexually but economically um that there's like there's a whole there's a whole thing of this i won't get into it because this is a podcast for children um but <laughs> is it it's a podcast for babies yeah, yeah. <laughs> the next episode is waiting for balloon it's amazing two minutes of of two-year-olds waiting for balloon spoiler alert balloon comes back um but yeah so so yeah it, like it's just it's just firing it's just connecting my synapses in a way that i was just like whoa i hate philosophy but this is amazing um it's really making me think about like our bonds as human beings and the political the political myth that we keep being fed that this is the only way that it has to be mm-hmm. because it's had to exist for generations and the idea that we don't need to follow that we can create our own structures mm-hmm. it's been there all along in our own origins we've just been taught to dismantle that So read the book. It's so good. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. You are our first repeat guest. We're, um, in fact, if we consider all the way back to Beckett's Babies 1.0, you're our, our, our first triple guest. <laughs> he sings, he dances. You are on the original. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm honored, and you know I'd do anything for you both, and I love you both. So, thank you for the opportunity to discuss like the emotional aspects of being a playwright, yeah, <laughs> and what it means to like think about dramaturgy yeah. and those sorts of senses, and what how a journey just gets retweaked. Often. I I love <laughs> a good venting sesh. Just I love it. Yes. <laughs> I love that. And. And guess what? Then I get to see you both in LA. I know. Because somebody's getting married. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, guys. So before we wrap up, just a few announcements to for our listeners. Um, mm-hmm. March 12th uh, at 8 p.m. at Teatro Luna, I'm telling a story. Oh, my um, gosh. Called Talking While Female Storytelling Sessions. The theme is magic. So I'm going to be telling a story of the day I became a witch. Um, <laughs> March 18th, uh, third Wednesdays of the month. It's my sketch team, Gutter, at the Pack Theater. Uh, this show is going to be wild. It's going to be wild. So highly recommend coming out. And lastly, our play of the month, March uh, play, Ching Chong Chinaman by Lauren Yee. We're going to oh, read that. Talk that. about that. Oh, good. Then you have to read it. You got to read it. Yeah. Oh, you read it? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. We're yeah. going to record on March 14th. 
for our March 16th episode. So send us your questions. Questions, thoughts. Comments. Yeah. We want it all. Glistens. Glistens. Uh, And as always, share, subscribe, like, you know, the drill. Tell your friends. Yeah. Tell your mom. (laughs) Your grandma. (laughs) Your grandpa. Tell them all. Those who are still figuring out what a podcast is. Tell them all. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening.